um, what I thought I'd talk about today is um, more, it's just sort of relevant to any kind of spiritual journey, the inner, inner looking. Ayakema was a nun and um, she was a German woman and she spent a lot of time in Sri Lanka and uh, she's written some. She says a thing, surely, she says, you're not you're no longer blaming the outer conditions which trigger your reactions, or are you still? (laughs) (laughs) The first time for me, uh, we have, you can call it this because the Buddha called it this, we have these things that happen in our lives that shift our perspective, that make us, you know, begin to be different and start our spiritual quest. one of my, we call them heavenly messengers. One of my heavenly messengers is my friend called Barry. And this was like when I was 22, living in Vancouver. I had just been married about three months and was in the kitchen talking to him and uh, was kind of complaining mildly about my husband who was still more interested in the Volvo than me and was outside playing with the car. And I was saying how marriage hadn't really changed anything. And somehow I thought it was going to be the thing. And... Uh, things in this vein and Barry said to me I was standing up with my back to my stove and he was sitting at the kitchen table and he said have you ever thought that it might be you it's like he punched me in the stomach I'll never forget it and I doubled over and turned around and leaned on the stove and I can still smell the gas and the pilot lights in my memory and I got it I had never ever until that time considered that the reality I was seeing had anything to do with my projecting anything onto it, you know, that shift. So right away, within an hour or something, I went to the, in Vancouver, just opened up a spiritual bookshop called Banyan Books, and I went in there, and all of these books were, all of these shelves of, and I couldn't recognize a word, it was Uspensky and Shri Mar Raman blah 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 and I you know I was like <laughs> and I knew that there was stuff there for me but I could not I just didn't know how to connect and I scanned these books and I found Tassahara bread book <laughs> I had just made my first loaf of bread the day before and so I was okay there was a way in for me even though I couldn't pronounce Tassahara I could <laughs> relate to bread so I went home and made bread with the tassel, having read the whole book cover to cover, made bread and um, the first lot of bread I'd ever made was still on the side table like sort of little lumps of stone and then here were these big, round beautiful golden loaves of bread beside the other bread, it was like that was the beginning of waking up like the, the bread symbolized it one of those pictures I have clearly in my mind the before and after shot <laughs> So when we do this, when we, we, different things will happen to all of us and we, we shift and, and we keep on having to remember this shift that it's actually in here. It isn't actually about what's out there. Of course, our whole wiring is to relate to what's out there as giving our lives meaning and we keep searching out there for the things we want that we think will work and make us happy, husbands and things like that, cars. And uh, so this is endlessly looking back inside. And as we do, and the Buddha, you know, was teaching us ways to help us see and what to see and how to make sense of what we see inside, it, especially earlier, isn't 
it isn't a very pleasurable occupation to look at your stuff. Fairly soon after that, I found myself in uh, Yucca Valley. I had a boyfriend now who was a practitioner of some kind, a devotional um, devotee of an Indian guru. And I found myself among friends of his in Yucca Valley and was beginning to meditate really without much you know, idea what I was doing. And it was horrifying. And I was talking to the woman with whom we were staying, whose name was Sheila, and beginning to tell her how how awful I felt because I was looking at my stuff and myself and feeling ashamed about things and horrified about, embarrassed. And, and she was like, great, great. You know, she was so happy. And I'm like, so do you, how do you ever expect to, to do any kind of cleanup on your basement, you know, hordes without going in there and turning on the light and seeing it? And she was like so delighted in this occupation of going into the basement and turning on the light and seeing it. And I was like, it's horrifying. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, it's my fault. So I want to talk about how we do that and how we can hold ourselves with some compassion and some understanding while we do this work. And the only way to do this work is that way, is to turn back and look inside and see what's actually here and what's going on. To do this, what, of course, we see is there's often, and nothing is permanent, so it isn't the way it is, but in moments, the way I'd like to be somehow quite far away from the way I am. There's this gap between the ideal person, the way I would really prefer to have been, and what I did, and what I've just said, and how I've just behaved, and so on. I call this um, habit of ours to relate to the way we'd like to be, which is it's wholesome, of course, to want to be nice. It's not there's anything wrong with it. But be, when it has this sense of, um, I should have done this, and oh, why did I do that? And oh, no, how could I have done that? As the tyranny of idealism. It's my latest phrase I've been using recently. It's such a tyranny to hold the bar so high and then to get so disappointed and bummed out and frustrated with ourselves which is a, such a common tendency. I mean, some of us don't do it, or there are times when we don't all do it. But it's, it's like, oh, God. It's way more commonly our response to, like, oh, to ourselves than, you know, like delight or even ease. Um, as Linda was mentioning in, in introducing me, in uh, November, December of this year, last year, I was in Burma at this monastery with this teacher, Utejaniya. And there were a couple there from Seattle I hadn't met before, husband and wife. And uh, they had practiced in Burma at different places before, and they were new to this particular teacher and this particular teaching. And, uh, and in this monastery, people talk from time to time. Some of them talk a lot. And um, we, would, we, we talked a little. And um, the two of them, every evening, would do their evening walk up and down and talk and sort of Dharma talk and support each other and talk about their practice that day. And um, they told me that she had said, when they arrived there, she was going to have really very low expectations of herself and her practice and sort of just see what happened. And he t said to her, why don't you lower the bar lower and have no expectations of yourself? <laughs> Which isn't what we usually do. We usually have the bar a little too high and it's unreasonable and then we get frustrated. 
So um, instead of the tyranny of idealism, what we need is realism. We need to be actually real. And this is what we're asked to do as we do this practice, is actually really see what's so. Let's be real about it. So to accept really and truly what's going on and how we are. And, and then be interested in and curious. Um, we need to actually let go of the expectations and the judgments and just let ourselves in kind of thing. It's an opening. It's, a, it's actually kind. It's a, there's a kind of attitude that's kind that allows us to accept ourselves as we are and, and you know, have some uh, friendliness like we do with our friends. We aren't idealistic about our friends, so they wouldn't be our friends. You know, we see they're all of it and they're our friends anyway. We tend to not, from time to time anyway, do that about ourselves. One of the ways that helps us do this which we get to see and we get to learn all this as we do this practice is um, we begin to understand and we can use this to remember, it helps us to remember that the reason we are how we are, it isn't all up to our will. If we could, we would all be enlightened already. We'd be just great all the time. We know we can't will it. We know it isn't up to our, just our intention. We need our intention, but there's way more to the picture. There's so many influences, so many forces happening, operating. Only a portion of those forces are what we can do something about. It's kind of like gardening. And I say this just because I'm a gardener and I can so relate to it and I have a large garden and I love it. And one of the things that I love about it is that I do what I can, but it's only partly my responsibility. You know, and then it does what it does. And I can't make the rose bloom. I simply can do the part that I can do, which is the cultivating and the fertilizing and the watering and the pruning and the watching and the talking and the encouraging. And then that's all I can do. And then I have to sit back and watch what happens and wait for it to happen. And it has its own life. And it's like our development is similar. It has its own life in a way. There is certainly a lot that we can do in intention, in, in, in training, in observing, in learning the various skills to be with ourselves and, and how to look and what to see. But the unfolding of our lives and the unfolding of ourselves is beyond our control. So, but as we do this work, this inner exploration, turning and going into the basement, if you like, and seeing things. One of the teachers on the retreat was saying, it's like Carol Wilson, some of you know her well, I'm sure, said it's like all the snakes start coming out. You know, like when there's going to be an earthquake, there's, uh-oh, I'm going to be having to look at this stuff, then all of the stuff starts to show up. This is an image of it. And this is the only way we can do the work we need to do, is to actually see the snakes or see the cobwebs or whatever, the junk, basically. It's the junk that we have to deal with. The lovely stuff we have nothing to do about. It's perfect. It's fine. It's great. The stuff that we have to work on is the other stuff, you know, the stuff that we don't want to look at and why the vast majority of people, especially in this culture, don't go there because it's not, it's junky. (laughs) 
And so uh, it takes, it takes uh, quite a commitment and often more than just a commitment and a wish to be pure, it often takes that we're driven there because other things have failed, you know, and we still aren't happy or there's insufficient pain that hasn't been satisfied by all the other things we do that often it's pain that drives us to a deeper quest. There's this poem by um, Hafez about this practice. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is full, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners (laughs) that we're keeping down there in the basement with all the other junk, allowing them up into the light. But they're beautiful and they're rowdy and we've got to let them out. And uh, have to do that with some kindness. So there's a way that I find inspiring. It's, it's just a thing I've thought of recently. And it's a thing about our hands. When, um, when somebody receives some amazing, wonderful thing, you know, great news, knock, 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 you've just won the lottery or something. That might not be so great for some people, but whatever. Mm-hmm. There is a very common response that we humans do in different cultures. It's just like, oh, there's a kind of bringing the palms together and like there's a delight. Amazing. Oh, that's so great. There's another one that's universal, I think. I don't know. I haven't traveled the world, but having talked to some people, which is when, we, um, when something happens that's, that's amazing, but that's huge, that's very significant, that's really beyond us, we have this kind of like, whatever, kind of. There's a kind of throwing the, the arms up like this. It's, it's what I think of as the universal hand mudra for the um, experience of, equanimity or upeka it's like okay sarah sarah you know it's going to be however it's going to be it's definitely not mine to control it's the open palm kind of like wonder there are lots of things that the hands do and you'll see why i'm saying this in a minute there was a book that i had once and i can't remember the title and or the author because I, I don't have it anymore but i read it years ago it's sort of an anthropologist book and it was about, um, you know, behavior and the expression of the behaviors in the various physical things we do, but what is expressing of our consciousness. And uh, there was a section on hands. And, for example, when we, um, when we clap our hands, you know, somebody's done something, bravo, what we're actually expressing is a wish to go to that person and to pat them on the back. But because they're on the stage and we're in the audience, or they're not quite close enough, we, do, we repeatedly want them to know that we're actually touching them and going, yay, but we're doing it because we only can reach our own hand, for instance. And another thing is when we wave, we generally wave, and check this out for yourselves, but on the whole we wave with the right hand. We don't necessarily, but we generally do, and mostly we're right-handed people. And this comes from like ancient days when it was like, I don't have a weapon in my weapon-wielding hand here. It's actually an open palm and it's therefore friendly and so I'm your friend so you can trust me. This is a little funny thing, but 
Have you ever seen the Queen? I know I grew up my first, you know, my childhood was all in England. Like when I grew up, I left England. When the Queen waves, the Queen does this. <laughs> and she doesn't show you her palm. She isn't saying, I'm your friend. She's, I'm sort of your friend, but actually I might have something I'm hiding from you like power. <laughs> Whenever you see that wave, you think, what a weird sort of wave. That's not friendly. And um, when we're really you know, excited or touched by something, something's really touching. We are, I've got a microphone on, but we, are, we often just, oh my goodness, that's amazing. We just hear something like really moving or whatever, good or bad. And when somebody's upset, so often we'll just pat them on the back, you know, just stroke them on the back, reassure them. We shake hands. We're actually saying, no gun, no knife, you know, see, it's just a, just a softness. We're offering the connection. Our hands express our inner experience so much. When we are really upset, distressed, you know, we often go, oh my God. And if it's really, really, really terrible, we've ha- we have to deal with some awful thing. People hold their heads really firmly, you know. There's a kind of holding together. And I've been a midwife, right? And so um, I remember many a time, but there's one particular time that I remember of a, a newborn baby, the first two, three days. She was the feistiest little girl who was ever I saw. She had red hair and she came out totally fired up. She was like, fi-, and they called her Cayenne, like right away, because she was <laughs> very hot, energy little girl. And, um, and like impatient and had to have what she, you know, right away. And, uh, and I knew the combination of her mouth and her mother's breasts was going to be difficult nursing. And so I didn't let them leave. They lived on another island until the nursing was established because I knew she'd get so frustrated, like it would be really difficult. And she would, and she'd just like yell, and she just couldn't do it. And I would have to hold her. And I remember I would hold her, one hand on her chest and one hand on her back, and I'd hold her tight, and she calmed down. And I had to do this tons while she learned to not be so freaking out, while she learned how to do it. And just the containing that the hands can do, that they do for ourselves, and they do if we're sore, you know, if we ache, we really, there's a kind of firm caring that comes out of the hands. So what I'm saying all this about the hands, because our hands express wisdom. Our hands are kind. They're, They're appropriate. They're kind to our bodies, they're kind to other people. I mean, sometimes they're mean. They can be used as a weapon. But on the whole, in normal life, naturally, they are an expression of how we really are inside. But what happens when we look at ourselves, we tend to forget to be the way we really are, and we go into this tyranny of idealism where we judge ourselves and get down on ourselves. If we had a tape that we could hear, playback, about how we constantly talk to ourselves, it wouldn't be the way our hands talk to ourselves. Our hands can be our guide. They, are, they know that the, the rest of the, the body is the same as themselves. They are with the body. They aren't separate and judging it and saying, you know, there's a wound, oh God, you stupid thing. You know, they're just like really tender with that wound. Or, you know, if you've got a blemish, they aren't going like, oh God. They're kind of like, hmm. Like, you know, there's a different attitude that we actually have deep inside ourselves. And I just, we need the encouragement of, of relating 
start to begin with to ourselves and it, which spills out to how we relate in the world with this kind of connecting with rather than judging and being separate from and being isolated the, the word in, in the, t- the teachings of the Buddha talk about this as conceit to, to have conceit meaning separated from comparing with better than, worse than different from, as good as, not as good as, whether it's our own idealism or each other. It's not actually the truth. The truth is, life is. And our hands behave with much more wisdom often than our minds. So um, there's an expression, love is wisdom's natural radiance. This is said by Ajahn Sumedho, one of the senior monks in Theravada lives in England and there's an American man who's been a monk for something like nearly 40 years. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. When there's understanding, there's a natural expression of caring. It just is natural. It's not a thing to have to learn or practice. What needs to happen is understanding, wisdom. When there's understanding, then there's automatically caring. So. I know I mentioned the word love, and the word love is a little loaded. If we think of, you know, the whole Hollywood version of love, or the whole romantic love, and how we all need love, and I want to think more in terms of the word trust. Sort of not quite so idealistic a word. There's a kind of um, feeling of relaxing into when I use the word trust rather than the word love. But, I'm going to still use the word love. The Dalai Lama says, without this love and compassion, our world would not survive. And there's also another teaching that says, love without wisdom isn't love. Wisdom without love isn't wisdom. If we love something but we don't really see the big picture of everything, we just get caught, attached, it becomes an object of desire, we get upset when we don't have it. It's a personal kind of love. I'm trying to get us to the sense of a bigger, more idea of unity, being with, understanding. And that really is the kind of love that's the, the deeper love, that you know, spiritual language. Wisdom without love, if there's understanding but there isn't really connection, it isn't really understanding. It may be some theoretical or conceptual idea about something, but if it doesn't have a connection to it, it isn't really love. It may be knowledge, different. So the challenge is, in a way, when we find that we're looking inside at our experience and we're seeing all the junk and we're getting to judge ourselves and get frustrated and disappointed, can we treat ourselves the way our hands treat the rest of our body? Longfellow wrote this, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Say it again. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life 
sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility? Well, first we need to look into our own secret lives and see enough suffering and sorrow to disarm any hostility we have towards ourselves. We need some compassion rather than the judgment. We need to lower the bar and get realistic and have some sympathy for the fact that we're the way we are because of all the conditions that have gone to make who we are. Some of which we can cultivate and a lot of which we need to just say, I speak with an English accent because I grew up there and I have this kind of a personality, I have these kind of genes, I had these kind of teachers, I had these kind of parents, for heaven's sake. And these are all the reasons why I behave the way I do, some of which I can cultivate, a lot of which I need to just simply accept as being the way it is. Thomas Merton, our job is to love without stopping to inquire whether each person is worthy or not. But I keep bringing it back to ourselves because we have to begin with ourselves. If we are being really loving out there but we're really not loving ourselves, we're not actually. There's some misconnection. So, and it isn't about indulging ourselves and being all self-centered in it, but our spiritual life our look, is to look at our stuff, which we need to do with this acceptance and understanding and some space. The Buddha said, Because we hold ourselves so dear, we must maintain careful self-regard. The reason we do this practice is because we actually do like ourselves, even though the ticker tape that's running by is this constant... Underneath all that, we do. We are, in fact, connected beings who who really care about our own deep happiness. And when we, of course, find that we can't find the solace that we know we're all seeking in the world, we start looking inside. We start doing what Barry said, is realizing it's my attitude that's affecting the things that are happening to me, the way I'm perceiving them. So our practice is be with just what's here, just as it is. We use this word tons, just what's here, without the judgment, without that commentary. Just, oh, there's this feeling, oh, this is unpleasant, oh, this feels spacious. How is what we're experiencing actually? Just basic. Let that, let that commentator be background noise, not believing the opinion, but the directness, the experience of what's happening. It's such a habit to add the commentator, we just do it all the time. So learning to not believe that judge, that's that's, such a huge step. This is another poem by Hafiz, he's my latest favorite poem, I've been reading him a lot. applies to us and applies to all of us. I long for you so much. Of course, every time he says you, he's talking about truth or we understand wisdom. I long for you so much. I follow barefoot your frozen tracks that are high in the mountains that I know are years old. I long for you so much. I've even begun to travel where I've never been before into the basement. 
Hafiz, there is no one in this world who is not looking for God. Everyone is trudging along with as much dignity, courage and style as they possibly can. We can keep remembering this, that helps us. You know, we're doing the best we can. We can only do so much. We fall short of the ideal. Okay, do the best we can. So how we practice, the flavor, the attitude we bring to our looking is the practice. We have the techniques, we have ways to look, we have things to understand, but it's our actual attitude that is the attitude of freedom or the attitude of struggle. And the attitude of judging is definitely not freedom. So when we find ourselves being here, being present, and then, oh, frustrated, or oh, disappointed, or oh, I wish it were different, or saying, oh, this is a great sit, oh, this is a lousy retreat, whatever, we're not actually practicing what the freedom that we're trying to experience. We want freedom, we want joy, we want connection, we want clarity, we want a light heart, we want openness, we want to be interested in life, we want to be vital. We don't want to be judging and frustrated and angry and critical and blaming and comparing and competitive. So we have to practice what we want to be. If we practice being critical, how can we be free? We have to do our practice the way we are wanting to be. Kind, patient, interested, accepting, realistic. Bring the flavor right into our being here, right into this moment. The flavor of what we know we we can trust. That can get into a whole talk about effort and how much effort and how much strain and striving because we need a certain amount of discipline, of course, but if it's being from should, from idealism, from blame, from frustration, that's definitely not the right effort. That's not wholesome. But to keep being encouraged, to be patient, to keep going out there and keep watering the rose instead of saying, I've done my bit now, you do yours, you know, and then leave it. It's not, that's not enough. We have to this constant tending and caring, but not too much, not too harsh. And probably the, the most direct way to feel is my attitude to being here is my attitude to inner exploration is my attitude to anything wholesome as the Buddha called the word kusala wholesome or unwholesome the most direct way is how is my physical body in this moment am I leaning forward wanting something am I pushing against something am I gritting my teeth am I in a state of, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's easier for some people than others. It depends how we're wired. But for me, if I can tune into the, to the attitude that's in my body, to whether I'm like tilted forward or if I'm like, oh no, I've got a, you know, 
fighting against something. There's struggling going on. I'm not mimicking a, a wise being. I'm not mimicking freedom. I'm mimicking, mimicking more frustration. Whatever we do, we are getting better at it. Everything we do, every moment of any attitude that we do, we are cultivating doing that. We're practicing. Everything we do is practice. Everything. So what are you practicing? As Carol Wilson says, everything we do, we're actually cultivating that. Am I cultivating judgment? Am I cultivating acceptance? Am I cultivating friendliness? So there's always a choice. We don't know we have a choice until we can realize we're doing something that's unwholesome. And then, do we want to keep doing it or do we not? It's, it's, it's like always coming back to this momentary choice. Is my energy wholesome here? Do I need to keep doing it then or do I not? There's a little story that Christina Feldman, one of the teachers, tells of how it goes differently when we make these choices. Of course, we all know this, but this is a, a great e example. Two housewives. This is, she's told us a few years ago, but it now seems to be fairly well resolved. But for a number of years, you probably know, in North, uh, Northern Ireland, there was a lot of conflict going on. And uh, this is a story from those days of the troubles when the, the Catholics and the Protestants were in constant conflict. Sometimes it would flare up, sometimes it was just low grade. Two housewives are walking down the pavement, the sidewalk, with their shopping bags, with their groceries. And one is a Catholic and one is a Protestant. And it's a narrow piece of sidewalk. And they come up to each other and neither of them will step off for the other one to go by. And they stand there and they refuse to budge because of their conflict. And they just keep standing there and they, neither will budge. And then they start you know, talking and being offensive to each other. Then they start really jeering at each other and then people start to notice there's a conflict. You know how these things happen. So then a little crowd begins to form and more and then people take sides and then there's all this jeering going on and shouting and yelling and stone throwing and then somebody actually whips out a gun and somebody gets killed. Just because their choice was no space for the other. And the other example was two Canadian I don't know if they were housewives, but they were two women. And um, it was during the ice storm. Do you remember years and years ago, eight years ago maybe now, there was a huge storm in the east. And so this major drama. So everyone had to stay home and trees were falling and power lines were falling. It was unbelievable. And these two women both had to go out and drive because one of them, her father, was, had a stroke and was in hospital and she had to go. And the other, her daughter, was in labor and she had to go and be with her. So they both had to brave the storm and they're out driving in their cars down the same road in opposite directions, like the two housewives in Ireland, but in cars. And they get to uh, the same spot where a tree has fallen across the road and they can't go any further. And they both get out in this storm and snow and freezing and they speak to each other and they tell each other their, both their stories and they hand each other each other's keys and they get in each other's cars and they go on their way. <laughs> we have a choice. <laughs> Sorry? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I don't know. They behaved like they were. So, um, and the last thing I would say is 
when we do our metaphrases, I don't know if any of you are familiar with doing meta practice, or I don't know anything about your practice, anybody, but part of our practice is wishing well. And uh, there are various phrases that people use when doing well-wishing practice. And one of the phrases which some people use, this is not very traditional, um, is, which I like a lot, is, I love and accept myself completely just as I am. And I have recently turned that into, I trust and accept myself completely just as I am. And I just think that's a very wholesome reminder to allow ourselves to be in the basement with the rowdy prisoners and have some space and some treat them with some actual wisdom, I think, as we um, as we undo our tangles, as we become more free, unbound, the teachings of, of the Buddha. So, that's all I have to say to you today. Thank you very much. Hope this is helpful. So it's about three minutes before quarter two, so please, yes, anyone go who needs to go, and I'm happy to stay for a little while and talk to people, and I don't know if I should still keep the mic on and there would be questions. I could do that, or we can be informal. What would, you know... Leave the mic on and let people ask questions for a while. Okay. My name is Cheryl. Uh, as you were speaking at the very end, I uh, flashed on an idea that, that I guess I'd reflected on in the past was um, the idea that these rowdy uh, ideas or feelings, whatever, that are in our basements. Um, what I guess I've, I've begun doing over time is knowing that um, you know, while I don't like dealing with them, I know they're part of me. And I think telling myself that I have confidence and that I can do work with them. And then in a way, um, seeing that they've provided me with some really unusual experiences and learning experiences, which I don't think I would have gotten if I'd walked around in oblivion of them. <laughs> really. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to connect the dots in my own understanding That's of what right. took place and what did I do that provoked something in someone else's basement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like, I would have never known that That's connection. Right. It That's isn't right. just about what's in my basement. It's in theirs. And maybe this whole separation idea we have is ultimately about integrating the, 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 you know, the whole house. Yes. It's about knowing when, when, you know, dwelling with those who live in the basement. Uh, You're not going to act, say, per se, from their um, advice, but you at least are aware of when they're active in other people's basements. And that gives you such a freedom. It's a different way of, you know, uh, understanding this this analogy that you've offered us. And it, I don't know, it just struck me as, uh, you know, <laughs> I have a full house. <laughs> and let's let's play. <laughs> let's learn together, because that's what I'm doing too. I I learn from other people. Yes. This is how it goes, because unless we understand for ourselves what it's like, we, we don't understand what it's like for someone else. But when we do, we do. And so, so there's a situation happening with somebody 
but we know what that's about and we know why and we know why that behavior is there and so we automatically have understanding but it, get, it comes from knowing what it's like to suffer to knowing what it's like to, to struggle and so what we need to know first so we begin there and then automatically love is wisdom's natural radiance is that we we just have compassion because we have understanding because we know what it's like we've been there and so uh, yeah that's how it, it just works I remember the first time I really realized that in my own experience I was sitting um, just um, coming out of a long retreat and I was really at a place called Gaia House in England where I like to practice and there's a section of the building where you can do your own practice and there's also a main part of the building where retreats organized retreats happen but in long term you can just do your own practice which is what I've been doing so I made myself go into the kitchen where the rest of the yogis were so that I could begin to kind of like open up and get because I was very sensitive and very quiet and so um, I'm sitting there in the dining room where I normally would eat by myself in the quiet um, where it's all noisy and people and you know people have just arrived from a retreat and they're not particularly sensitive at all and I'm extremely you know I am and so I'm sitting opposite this man um, eating and he's very clumsy compared to me you know like I'm in a sensitive state so I'm just realizing how clumsy he is and he has forgotten his knife and fork and pushes his chair back and grates on the floor and bangs into somebody and goes and gets knives I mean he's just behaving like a normal person but to me it was like <gasps> and um and then I just I've, my first tendency was like oh god people are so out of it was my first response and then my second response right away was well of course he's like that he's just come in from a busy stressful life he's eaten beans on toast his whole life he's been watching coronation street every night of course he's going to behave like that <laughs> it was kind of like it i didn't have to do that but i it's just like how could he not be like that if i had his parents i would be exactly like that <laughs> you know it was kind of and yes so then that's how our understanding connects us and so then we're on each other's side we're not like i'm here and why are you doing that and it works like that it just spills out like that and then it's so lovely because then it happens without you trying to be nice with the high, high bar and be wise and understanding it's just like it's a spontaneous you're there too it's like of course hmm doesn't have to be questions anything you want to share because it would be just it's nice to have a little connecting time we all want to share but we don't have, have any words <laughs> do most of you know each other no Just to mention, um, after the Dharma talk and after the temple cleaning, uh, the um, Dharma-inspired uh, book study group will be meeting here um, uh, this afternoon. Um, the book is Light on Enlightenment. Uh, thank you. What's the book? Light on Enlightenment. Who's it, it by?
Was there a hand over here? Talk to Cindy about it if, um, uh, afterwards. Oh, Light on Enlightenment. Nice. Don't know that book. Anything, anyone else? Well, it's really nice to be here, and I look forward to coming back later on and hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you.